Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm Kathleen Vandewill. And I'm Grant. Where's Pat? I don't know. (laughs) Welcome to Opera for Everyone. (laughs) We have Grant and Kathleen back together again. I'm here. Never fear. (laughs) We locked her out of the sound booth. Frequent listeners to Opera for Everyone will recall that we had the three of us together, Kathleen, Grant, and Pat, doing one previous opera. Ooh, ooh, I know this one. William Tell. I love doing William Tell with the two of you. Kathleen, I know, has done a lot of research into the literary elements of this Julius Caesar opera that we're doing. We're doing Handel's Giulio Cesare in Igetto, Julius Caesar in Egypt. And Grant, I'm going to rely on you for some ancient history. I can make that happen. Well, we're hearing a little bit of the Sinfonia, that overture in the beginning. This is a Baroque opera that dramatizes the period of time that Julius Caesar is in Egypt, just as the title will imply. And you know, if Julius Caesar's in Egypt, there's going to be at least one other main character who appears. That would be the last queen of Egypt, Cleopatra. You always know you were very successful if you're the last ruler of some place. Or very unsuccessful. (laughs) Yes, but she's not a sole ruler when our opera opens. Or ever, she just marries a succession of her brothers. Those Ptolemies. They did keep it in the family. I was looking at Cleopatra's family tree recently, and uh, it is an interesting chart. There's just no in or out, just a fully closed system here. She was probably married to the Ptolemy that we meet in this play, Ptolemy XIII, but it never says that anywhere in the historical record. Just, just kind of assuming that because that was how the Ptolemies rolled. And she certainly was married to her 12-year-old brother subsequently. Yes. So this opera premieres in 1724 in London. It is, I think, the fifth opera that Handel is producing in London. We've done other Handel operas on Opera for Everyone. A couple premiere in Italy, but most of Handel's career takes place in London. In keeping with the tradition of the time, The male lead, in this case Caesar, and also some of the other characters, Ptolemy, and one of the court officials connected with Ptolemy and Cleopatra, these are all sung by Castrati. And just as a reminder, a castrato is an adult male, but his voice has not had the opportunity to change because he is surgically prevented from going through puberty. Very delicately said. (laughs) Thank you. Well... It's an interesting and almost incomprehensible procedure for us today. It was very, very popular for a long time, and a lot of our older operas make use of these castrati, but it was ultimately outlawed. Yes, castration for this purpose was made illegal around 1861, although... In Italy, right? In Italy, yes, but it wasn't until 1878 that the Pope, Leo XIII, banned the church from hiring castrati. However, some recent research suggests that the church did tolerate continuing to hire castrati as late as 1959. Oh my. Well, part of the history of this is that these singers were first used in in church settings because they didn't want women performing. It was only men that they wanted performing, but they wanted those high voices. And of course, The general public didn't think it was a great idea for women to be on stage performing because then they're associated with licentiousness, immoral acts, loose, being loose women. And also making their own money and not being dependent on a male protector. Important historical side note, and this will be important to the plot later on. The historical Julius Caesar 
did have all of his equipment. <laughs> Which leads us to this first aria that we're going to listen to by Julius Caesar. I wanted to prepare people when we hear Julius Caesar sing. Julius Caesar is singing in what sounds, and in fact in this recording, is a female voice. This is a mezzo-soprano portraying Julius Caesar. Because with these roles written originally for the castrati, either today it has to be interpreted, presented by a mezzo-soprano or a countertenor. So there are three castrati roles in this particular opera. One is Julius Caesar, and in our recording we have a mezzo-soprano singing that. We'll do all the IDs in the beginning of the second half, as always. But we do have two countertenors, one playing Ptolemy, her brother, and the king, and one playing one of the court officials. We have a, just a small amount of choral work. By the way, there's a chorus, but they, they, don't get a lot of, they don't get a lot of work in this opera. They show up in the beginning, in the end, and just a little snatch in the middle. Mostly, we have solo pieces, a couple duets, that's it. It's almost like we're in a period of Roman history where the voices of the regular people matter less and less and less. Oh, nice point, Grant. Right. It's true. It's true. So we open and the chorus of the Egyptians are rejoicing and they're glad. They are glad that Caesar seems to be triumphant, this Roman who is now in the land of Egypt. Yes. Julius Caesar has defeated his main rival, Pompey, on the banks of the River Nile and is being welcomed as a, as a victorious general at this point. Yes, and the details of that are sung by Caesar himself. He was the kind of person who didn't want to just be in history. He wanted to write the history. Julius Caesar, the conquering hero, singing in Handel's Julius Caesar in Egypt. And I notice that he says to his right-hand man, his general, Caesar came, 
saw and conquered, speaking of himself in the third person with that very famous phrase. Yes, I'm sure people know the the veni vidi vici or weni vidi vici phrase, which yeah. is not related to this victory, but but is actually a, a dispatch from the front that Caesar sent to the Roman Senate in a totally different battle that he was fighting. But it was such a successful and pithy phrase that it became his own propaganda, and he started having it written on placards, and basically it became the the campaign button of the Roman Senate. Oh, wow. Well, he wasn't just writing the history. He was really crafting his image. Yeah, Caesar was one of our first historians. Uh, he, he, he is not always 100% to be trusted because he's speaking of his own exploits, leaves out a considerable amount, and makes up a considerable amount, but that is just as interesting as what he gets right, I think. But yes, it means I came, I saw, I conquered. It remains a very pithy phrase to this day. Stay tuned for further things that Caesar may have embellished or completely made up, including potentially the entire plot of this opera. <laughs> well, we, we do say that you don't get your history or your history lessons from opera, but you do get a lot of entertainment and a lot of deep emotion. And I will say that the opera has its uh, divergences from, from the historical accounts that we have, but the historical accounts themselves are not to be trusted. This is an era when Rome undergoes, I think, six civil wars in the matter of a couple decades, and the result is that everybody in their most eloquent voices is speaking about what happened in ways that profoundly disagree with each other and render the era a really interesting case study in, well, unreliable narration, we can say. Mm. Well, historically speaking, his defeat of Pompey, that's when he really consolidates all the power to himself, because previously, wasn't he part of a triumvirate, three men ruling? Yes. The Romans, they love their triumvirates. He went through a couple of different ruling trios, duets. He was in various positions of power, but this is definitely where he starts to get, I would say, a little bit too powerful for his own good. Well, it does lead to his downfall, but that's not part of this opera. Spoiler. <laughs> that is a Shakespeare play you might have heard of called Julius Caesar. Yes. Where he dies halfway through, which is just kind of disappointing for a lead character. And just to be clear, this is not based on the Julius Caesar you may have encountered in high school or, or afterwards, nor is it based on Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra, another mm. dip into the same basic source material. This is actually a, a story of Caesar that Shakespeare chose not to write, a fact that really surprises me. I am pretty convinced there's a lost play out there we're going to find one day because it's a great story and, as you'll see, very full of drama. And it would make a sensible first part if we imagine that the other two Shakespeare plays were telling later parts of the story. Yes, and it's in keeping with the way that Baroque opera was crafted, where they figured they needed mythological, larger-than-life characters or characters from ancient history of greatness and renown. And Julius Caesar is an interesting character in terms of history versus legend, partly because he was a historian and he was a mythmaker. In both cases, his primary subject being himself. Yeah. And so he is, he is simultaneously a figure of history and legend and, in fact, in the same story and in the same breath. Right. Well, we have our conquering hero on stage, and soon we see not an Egyptian woman, but a Roman woman appear. And this is Cornelia, the wife 
of his defeated adversary. And she comes in with her son, Sesto in the Italian, or Sextus. So he is Pompey's son. Is he also Cornelia's son? And I imagine in different versions of the opera, he may be played as a child or as an adult, depending on, on which answer we're going for there. Because I believe in the versions that we have seen, he's, he's around the same age as his mother. Which I will throw in there as a historical note. Cornelia was Pompey's fifth wife. Yeah, Pompey had an interesting romantic history. And in fact, one of his previous wives was a daughter of Julius Caesar and helped cement their alliance until she died in childbirth, a childbirth that did not produce a living child. And so that was the inciting incident to the dissolution of their alliance and them becoming at loggerheads once again. Right. Two powerful men. Cornelia will refer to Sextus as her son, as families would when she joins the family. And we've even seen that in other operas, characters of the same age. But if the woman is married to the father, that person becomes the son. And so throughout this, Sextus, we're going to use the anglicized version, Sextus is referred to as the son of both Pompey and Cornelia. So these two come on and they have a request to make of Julius Caesar, respectfully so. Yes, Cornelia begs for mercy. She begs that her husband be spared. And Caesar seems amenable to that. He says Pompey must come meet him in person, come speak to him. But if so, he will spare his life. Right, because he says it is a virtue of great men to forgive offenses. Again, this is part of that myth-making. He is such a great man that his greatest adversary, he will grant mercy. Yes, and, and this is in marked contrast to later Roman leaders who became famous for, I would say, a much more wanton cruelty. Caesar has many faults and, and many inventions, but we don't know him as a, as a wantonly cruel man. Right. And it's dangerous, potentially, to leave an enemy alive. And in fact, he was, at the time, mocked by some quarters for the events that transpire as a result of his attempts at mercy. Well, this all becomes moot. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, there is another leader in town, and that is our Ptolemeo or Ptolemy, who is the king, basically, at this time of the Egyptians. He immediately has his emissary, Aquila, present Caesar with a basket containing the head of his enemy, Pompey, which displeases Caesar, but is, is fantastic dramatic timing. Yes, it's, they think it's a great gift. Here, you are in our land, we recognize your authority, and so much so that we want to honor you with something you would value above all else. And Caesar's not crazy about this. Yes, this is a, a very a small moment, but a, a one worth noting. There's a distinct difference here in how one treats one's enemies and, and whether we consider that civilized, I would say. In this case, we see a distinct difference. Caesar is willing to forgive his enemy. Whereas without even thinking, the Egyptian leader thinks, uh, well, I'll just execute him. <laughs> and this was in keeping with the Roman self-image of being magnanimous to the defeated enemy, that you would go out and you would come see and conquer, and <laughs> then you would offer mercy and offer them a way into the Roman civilization and way of life. Not at this time in a full sense, but in an associate or affiliate sense. That's how you build an empire. 
Yes, and, and a, a lot of the Roman people, a lot of the people who made up the empire were, were former conquered peoples who were presented with a path to citizenship, if you will, um, quite literally. If they were to, to serve in the army, for instance, even though they are part of a, a conquered peoples, they could become Roman citizens eventually. So you see there's, a, there's an honor culture, there's a complicated immigration culture being referenced here, and you also see that none of that is the case in this depiction of Egyptian culture. And Egyptian is sort of a tricky word to use with the Ptolemies. Cleopatra is claimed to be the only one of them who actually bothered to learn the Egyptian language. <laughs> the Ptolemies were a Macedonian Hellenistic dynasty descended from one of the generals of Alexander the Great. And so they always sat in a very uncomfortable position atop Egyptian hierarchy, where they tried to make themselves Egyptian in certain senses, but also tried to preserve their Greekness at the same time. Yeah, complicated ancient world. And just a tiny side note, Handel was living in an England, which ultimately is ruled by Germans because of the way they handled the succession to the throne and trying to maintain Protestantism. But that can be a topic for another day. Well, as we said, Julius Caesar is enraged by this gesture. And we, in fact, get our first rage aria. There are several rage arias. And that description of it as a rage aria it gives us a moment to just say most arias in Baroque operas, this opera is no exception, they focus on a single emotion, a single reaction, a feeling. So you might have a, a love aria, a passion aria, a triumphal aria, but there's going to be a, an exploration of feeling or a deepening of feelings. And most of the plot moves forward through the recitatives, through the, through the parts that are between the arias. And most of the arias, as I said earlier, are solo. So we're just going to hear a tiny bit of Caesar's rage. Well, Caesar's enraged, but this emissary of Ptolemy, who brought the head, this gruesome gift to Caesar, while all this is happening, we hear a couple of asides from him, kind of unexpected, a little startling. He has this severed head that he's presenting, and he suddenly realizes that the widow of this severed head is quite lovely, and he fancies her strongly. Talk about bad timing for the meat cute. Yeah, I don't think yeah. there's anything cute about meeting somebody over the severed head of your husband. Uh, I don't think you could turn that around. Uh, <laughs> yes, this is an interesting plot point throughout. Cornelia is that girl. She is the hot girl of this play. Everyone loves Cornelia. And by the way, she is sung by a contralto, so the lowest female voice. You would think that Cleopatra would be the most desired woman in this. And she is very desired. She's desired by Caesar. But no, uh, Cornelia is the one with all the suitors. Not only is she desired by Achilles, but she will be receiving a proposal of marriage over the corpse of her husband very soon. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. She is never really talked about as a main character, but to me, she's absolutely pivotal in this opera. 
as this woman that everyone wants, including Ptolemy. Yeah, and historically, she was married to the son of Crassus, one of the other great Roman orator, statesman, general politicians of this era, and one of the real contenders for power in the struggles that this play is depicting a part of. Yeah, the third of that triumvirate that included Caesar and Pompey and Crassus. And, and basically her plot in this in this opera is an attempt, honestly, to exit the, the theater of politics. And yeah. people keep saying, no, no, I want to, I want you to be my wife. I'm a politician. You are such a good politician's wife. And she says, I just want to exit this theater. And I find that a, a sort of fascinating attempt by a female character to say, you know, please, please get me out of here, which is very different than obviously Cleopatra's motives, as we'll see. And historically speaking, she did. There are no spoilers in opera, right? No spoilers in opera. Historically speaking, she did ultimately get out of politics after being married to two of the three most powerful men in Roman politics, she was able to have a relatively quiet retirement into obscurity after this. We hear a great deal about her until she's about age 25 when this takes place, and then she disappears off the historical record, which is honestly about as good as it gets for any of these people, because most of them do not die peacefully in their beds. No, and Cornelia here, needless to say, is suffering unimaginable grief with what she's just witnessed, what she's just realized is the lot of her life. And her initial response in a very operatic way here is to consider killing herself. And she has stopped. Her son will not permit it. Sextus will not permit it. And we will vocally now introduce to you Cornelia in a grief aria. She says she's even deprived of the comfort of death and she is consumed with sorrow. Cornelia, the widow of Pompey, is consumed by grief, and she is in the company of her son, who is also feeling grief. But soon they, they take their grief and they decide what their action should be. She's not going to kill herself, 
So she wants something from her son. Yes, she wants her son to avenge the death of her husband and his father. This is a very classic response in a lot of classical literature to the death of a father. It is incumbent upon the son to avenge his death in order to keep his honor, and, and, and Sextus will, will be required to do this. And it could be played different ways in the presentation of this opera. But in general, Sextus comes across as a little bit young and a little bit overwhelmed by this requirement in this world of warriors. And because Sextus is young, he is sung by a mezzo-soprano, always. That's how Handel created this role. And that was a common device for presenting young men. Let's just listen a little bit to his rage aria. We'll get to hear another expression of rage as Sextus expresses his emotions about the death of his father and knowing that he needs this rage to do what his mother has asked him. is the song of Sextus, son of Pompey. Historically, Sextus Pompeius is one of, to me, the most interesting of these figures. He is there throughout this. His war does not end here. Indeed, he continues to struggle against Caesar, and after Caesar is gone, the Caesareans, the descendants and inheritors of Caesar's legacy, ultimately Octavian or Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. And he struggles against them. He fights against them on land and at sea across the Mediterranean, as far away as in Spain. And ultimately, he is defeated while holding the island of Sicily in defiance of the entire burgeoning Roman Empire. He was in many ways the most successful and certainly one of the very last pieces of resistance to the consolidation of what would become the imperial power of Rome. And there's no hint of that in this opera. No, he actually gets on quite well with Julius Caesar in this opera. Right, because the Romans and that identity of being Roman, and and in the opera we will hear Cornelia reference her Roman identity as a mark of elevated status. And I think Sextus is part of that. Yes, yes. And Sextus is, is very thoroughly Roman. Um, and there are some who think that he might have ended up in a different world, uh, the person on top of the burgeoning imperial state. But as it was, he was simply one of its last opponents. 
we have a major change of scenery and uh, and character. We're going to go to the chamber of the queen, Cleopatra. Yes, it's amazing that we've we've taken this long before we've met probably one of the most famous women in all of history, mm. Cleopatra, and one of the most entrancing, of course. Uh, we mentioned before that Shakespeare did not dramatize this story, but if you are looking for a, a pseudo-dramatization of this story, the very epic movie, oh. uh, Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor, does include some of the very famous scenes, including one of my favorite, which is Cleopatra rolling herself in a rug to meet Caesar. Yeah, we don't have that scene here, but we do have her meeting Caesar later on. Before she meets Caesar, we need to meet her on stage. So there's a lot of politics. That's quite an understatement. There's a lot of politics going on in this opera. And of course, Cleopatra is one of the most famous political women in history, as well as one of the most beautiful and entrancing. And she has decided that there is an opening for her to take power from her brother. She is yes. at this time not ruling with her brother. Her brother is the ruler, and she believes that she should rule over the Egyptians. So she decides the way to do this is to seduce the 50-something-year-old Caesar, who I, I believe is currently married, of course, but um, but no matter. But that doesn't come up. No, <laughs> no, it doesn't. No matter. And so she is going to entrance him and use him as a political pawn to achieve her aims. I would say that, as we'll, we'll hear a little bit later, there's a good deal of romance that Handel injects into this story, but I think her motives are, are probably more purely political. And this brings me back to one of my regular hobby horses, which is authors in a context of modern or modern-ish morality, a uh, context of Christian morality, taking on stories from pagan antiquity and interpreting them or layering them with what would seem like right and wrong more closely to how we understand it than it would have been understood in this time. Yes, there was, of course, a ideal of fidelity, but there was very much an idea in Roman society that the powerful could do as they wished and that that was the right of the powerful earned by, you know, the kind of things that you do to achieve power. Right. And so it would be a natural matchup for this very powerful, victorious Roman general to ally himself entirely with this Egyptian queen who seemed to have about her the authority and the ability to be the ruler of Egypt under his umbrella. Let's hear a little bit of our soprano Cleopatra declaring her intention to be the one to reign. Okay. 
That's our queen, Cleopatra, as she plans her political maneuverings to oust her brother from power and to take control herself. But one of the court advisors comes in, and this is Nereno in Italian, or we'll probably say the Anglicization Nerenus. And Nerenus lets her know about this severed head. And in keeping with these ideas that Grant was referring to of more modern morality, she is appalled that Ptolemy has made this happen. She is surprised and can't believe that he's behaved this way. She is shocked, shocked, shocked. Yeah, Shocked she didn't have the idea first, I would say. <laughs> but not in this opera. Not in this opera. And, and I will say that historically or legendarily or according to whatever sources we have, the killing of Pompey was not done honorably. It was done by deception with Achilla and various others, you know, taking him to a boat and offing him in full view of his son. Nasty stuff. Well, Cleopatra sees an opening. She goes, oh, well, surely this has displeased Caesar, and I, I can please Caesar. So she has an option here, and she's going to take full advantage of it. But before we see that element work itself out, Ptolemy enters, and we meet Ptolemy for the first time. So when Cleopatra and Ptolemy get together. Needless to say, there's a little frisson. So Cleopatra was a rival of a succession of Ptolemies, her brothers, mm. and this was pretty, pretty typical. She was a co-ruler who wanted to be sole ruler. Honestly, not terribly dissimilar to Caesar himself, who <laughs> as a triumvir wanted to be the sole authority. This Ptolemy, Ptolemy Thirteenth, for those of you keeping count. No one is. <laughs> This Ptolemy was only 15 at the time of the action of the play. Mm. He isn't presented quite that way, although maybe... No, he isn't, he isn't presented as 15, but he is presented as less mature than Cleopatra. And he is a historical figure who shows up extremely briefly. He basically shows up for this episode and then is swiftly ushered off the historical stage for, spoiler alert, the uh, reason of him being, you know, um, killed. But we needed a villain in our opera, and Ptolemy is that villain. So Ptolemy learns that his grand plan to woo Caesar with a severed head has not been as successful as he hoped it would be. No. Achilles has been raged at. Yes, Achilles uh, is the is the messenger and suffers the the pangs of of being a, a messenger with an unwelcome message. And an unwelcome severed head. I'm just saying, you show up with the severed head, people aren't looking for, and they are going to be rude to you. And I don't know this from <laughs> personal experience, but I know people who it has happened to, and they do not have the most pleasant stories of it. An interesting life, Grant. Yes, indeed. Really only, really only worked for Salome. Uh, and that's arguable itself, too. Uh, yeah, indeed. Well, Ach Achilles has, has the double displeasure of being an unwelcome messenger to both parties that he has communicated the severed head information to. And now he is communicating that back to his boss, Ptolemy, who is extremely unhappy that his gift has been rejected in this way and has decided, well, I guess I have nothing in common with the Caesar dude, so I'm going to just kill him and use that to consolidate my own power. Right. At this time as well, we get a little a little breadcrumb, a little further evidence of, of how much of a hot girl Cornelia is. Achilles says, you know, I saw the widow of that guy who you had me execute and wow, she is good looking. You know, if I help you with this plot, could I marry her? This is the the second person who has 
has made this offer about or to Cornelia. The, the first is Caesar's assistant, who also thinks, hey, if I avenge your husband's death, will you marry me? She is, she is understandably not enthused by that offer. And I think probably won't be enthused by this offer either. So we're setting up some dramatic love quadrangle tension for further. And Achilles is, I mean, his words are so um, extreme. Her tresses bind me. Her glance pierces me. And when he proposes this exchange, I'll help you, Ptolemy, to kill Caesar and consolidate power if you give me Cornelia. Ptolemy doesn't go, good deal, no big deal, one woman and I'll be king, he says, oh, is she really as lovely as all that? As we noted before, in terms of talking about Ptolemy's age, I think of him as a horny teenager in this play. <laughs> which, is, which is definitely a reasonably historical way to present him. He is certainly impetuous and does as he pleases in the same sort of manner that we've seen with other operatic kings who are either young or... Uh, is young at heart the right term for someone who just never grew up because their world of responsibility and power was so off? No, I think immature will do. But you see here also, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but there's some hints too about a European orientalizing of the Egyptians. There is talk later of a, a seraglio that Cornelia is placed in. There's this references to Ptolemy's harem, which is, is all a little bit of a meshing of different Oriental cultures, as they would have referred to them as. Handel is, is making a comment that we are the descendants of the Romans and, and have, as Grant previously mentioned, a, a certain continuity of morality that we are applying to their actions, whereas the actions of the more exotic characters, once again, using language they would use, not that we should, is presented as very other with a capital O. Well, let's hear a little bit from Ptolemy. Again, Ptolemy is played by a countertenor in this recording, originally a part written for a castrato. And here Ptolemy is angry that he's been rejected by Caesar. More rage? Oh, 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 oh,
that was a very angry Ptolemy in Handel's Julius Caesar in Egypt, Giulio Cesare, as it's commonly known. Well, we, we have a pretty quick switch in locale, and we're with Caesar now. Yes, and, and with Cleopatra as well, who is in disguise as a, a maiden, a common maiden named Lydia. And this is a, a very common trope. You have yes. your, your famous, often royal female character, sometimes male, but usually female, in disguise. The, the first reference that comes to mind for me is Aladdin <laughs> with Jasmine. <laughs> <laughs> dresses as a, a peasant girl because she wants to see the city and, and get away from her father. Sort of a similar vibe here, but a little bit less innocent. Cleopatra is enacting her own political agenda to seduce Caesar. So she dresses as a, a beautiful but common maiden and goes to his camp to seduce him. She is basically hoping that if she seduces him and then reveals herself to be a queen, yeah. he will support her accession to the throne. But she thinks it's important to first seduce him and not immediately appear as a, as a queen because then he has, to, he has to speak with her strictly on a political level. That raises the stakes mm-hmm. a lot. And yeah. here he can just fall in love. Yes. So she, well, she successfully seduces him. Why, why mince words? Um, as Nireno later will note, I don't think he put up much resistance. Nothing is consummated in this first falling in love. That that will happen later. But his heart is one. Let's let's just say that. That, that <laughs> Leave is it there. undoubtedly true. Sounds like we're willing to mince a few words. <laughs> well, yes. Well, in fact, Nirenus tells her already Caesar's heart is conquered by your beauty, and it beats with love for you, and his whole will is yours to command. Well, that's the power she's been after. Wow. <laughs> for, that's all it takes uh, to win the heart of Julius Caesar and all the power at his command is just to wink at him while wearing a pretty dress, apparently. Yeah, but in keeping with this whole concept that these operas are about great personages, We know that the reason he falls so hard for her is that, in fact, she is of his status. She Mm. is a queen. I suppose, yes, that that does elevate it if he sort of unconsciously knows. His unconscious, to use some very anachronistic to this time period language, seems to recognize the, the royal nature of her own self, despite her disguise. Exactly. And meanwhile, Cornelia continues to grieve, to suffer, and to make some plans with her son. There's some, I would say, literary resonances here with a play by Euripides, a a Greek tragedian, one of the greatest tragedians, called The Trojan Women, which Mm. is a fantastic and interesting set piece where the the female survivors of the Trojan War are debating what's going to happen to them and how they're going to be divided up among the Greek conquerors. And you see a lot of... um, Cleopatra resonances in the in the character of Helen of Troy, I would say. Mm. But Cornelia is it's much closer to a character like Andromache, who has a young son as well in that play. And the young son, although just a baby at this point, Astyanax, it is understood that he would have to avenge the death of his father, Hector. So you see, there's there's definitely some, you know, it's not a direct maybe literary source, but I would say there's definitely some references here to the, the need for a, a former political wife and young son to avenge the death of her political husband. A reference that's not a reference. You might almost call it a, as we were saying before, a wink. A wink. 
It's interesting, too, that one of the modern interpretations, uh, I believe done by ENO, English National Opera, chose to make Sextus a daughter instead of a son. Mm, then you get some, some resonances of a different tragedy and you get um, Electra there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, it is interesting to see how different opera companies will change settings, uh, interpret a modernization to present to modern audiences. And I will note as, as one final note on the, the resonances of those two stories, in the Trojan women, Ulysses or Odysseus mm. has the child, the son, Astyanax, killed oh. because he understands in a very wise but brutal sense that that child would be required by he honor. Knows his culture. Yeah, to, to avenge. And so he takes care of a future enemy. In contrast to how Caesar handles it, uh, yeah. which historically goes on to cause him no end of grief, even beyond his own lifetime. Though in the play, mercy is an unalloyed virtue, which may reflect more of Handel's own morality than that of Caesar's time. Mm. Well, as Cornelia and Sextus are, are talking about the revenge that they need to take, they are overheard. And you might think that would be dangerous for them, but it's not. They gain some allies. Yeah, so we get a, a new triumvirate. We get Cleopatra is, is on their side and says, not exactly for selfless reasons, but their goals align. And so she is going to join and, and attempt to help them with their plan. Right. She is still disguised as this woman of the palace, but she points out that the man with her, Nuranus, is a servant to the queen, and he can show them things, get places, mm -hmm. and make their revenge a little smoother. And they're excited about that. And in fact, this is the first time we really hear Cornelia not utterly bereft. She's gaining a little bit of hope in her heart that things may improve a little bit. Nothing like a little bit of cold-hearted revenge to put a spring in your step. <laughs> and then the scene changes dramatically. Well, really everything's dramatic in this play, but, but this scene changes in any event. We find Ptolemy, and this is the face-to-face -face meeting of the king of Egypt with the conquering Roman, Caesar. So Ptolemy and Caesar are together. And we already know how Ptolemy feels about Caesar. And we pretty much know how Caesar feels about Ptolemy because of that rage aria we heard in the beginning in response to the severed head that was Ptolemy's gift presented to him. Yes, but they both keep that under their hats a little bit when they meet. It's very... Yeah politic it's very civilized they meet and Ptolemy says hey you know do you want to move into the palace <laughs> you can be here as, as a royal honored guest oh no that sounds very sketchy <laughs> I, I think it's a, a very literalization of keep your enemies closer at this point mm -hmm. but you know Caesar is is not fooled by this and he he says sort of in an aside to Curio his body man that he knows that Ptolemy is just saying that in order to betray him as we said before, all of the plot moving forward is revealed in these recitatives, these things that we've been recapping for you just now. And this next aria we're going to play a bit of lets us into Caesar's thoughts. So as they are maintaining dignity and doing things as heads of state ought to do when meeting one another, we understand what's going through Caesar's head through this aria. He says, when intent on prey, the shrewd huntsman moves silently. And secretly, he who yearns for evil is not anxious for the deceit in his heart to be seen. 
so he knows he cannot trust Ptolemy at all. One other thing to note when you listen to this piece by Caesar is that there is a solo horn. There are horns, and horns were not typical in orchestras of this time. And Handel did make use of horns and introduced it as a more common instrument to be found. So as you listen to this piece, do listen out for the horn.
So now that Caesar and Ptolemy have sized each other up, we switch back to our other characters, specifically Cornelia, that girl who is so hot. (laughs) (laughs) So Ptolemy sees Cornelia for the first time while having this political discussion with Caesar and is fascinated by her beauty, as is everyone who meets her. Yes. Stamps his foot a bit because he's already promised his general Achilles that he can... Achilles yeah, can have her. King. He doesn't have to keep to that promise. Yeah. Well, Ptolemy is, is setting up some bad politics for himself because he's about to turn his own general against him. Well, we said he's not as shrewd as Cleopatra. And, yes. We, and we said he's a horny teenager, too. Mm. But we see that he's expressing interest in Cornelia. Achilles is very into Cornelia. So is Curio, but he's a distant third. Then Sextus, of course, is standing there, too. And, and it says, basically... You're the killer of my father. I want to challenge you. And that challenge is unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cornelia then rejects the advances of Achilles. And as soon as that happens, Achilles uses his power to arrest her son, Sextus. So it it ends in a bit of a... This this act ends in a bit of a cacophony. Well, a beautiful duet, not a cacophony, but... A, um, I would say a, a literary cacophony where everyone is is running around and people are being arrested and love is being rejected. Yes, and, and Cornelia says, well, let me at least give my dear son a last kiss. And here is where we get one of our two true duets in this whole very long, almost four-hour opera. Cornelia and Sesto, again, these are two female voices. We have the contralto, the mother, Cornelia, and Sesto, who is always played by a mezzo-soprano. And it's a beautiful blending of these voices where they say, I was born to weep, I was born to sigh. It's sad and sweet in its beautiful musicality. Oh, 
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. It airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in beautiful Jackson, Wyoming. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast, where you can find a rich trove of past episodes. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined today by the infamous Grant and the erudite Kathleen. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Always a pleasure. Please stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. We're doing Handel's Giulio Cesare in Egetto, Julius Caesar in Egypt. Before we get back into the show, we'd like to thank all the people responsible for making this fabulous CD that we've been listening to. It was recorded in 2002 with the conductor Mark Minkowski leading Les Musiciens de Louvre. In this opera, we group into Romans and Egyptians, and these are the Romans. Julius Caesar is sung by the mezzo-soprano Mariana Majinovic. Cornelia is sung by Charlotte Helicant. Sesto, Sextus, the son of Cornelia and Pompey, is sung by Anne-Sophie von Otter. And Curio, the Roman tribune, the helper to Caesar, is sung by Jean-Michel Ankewa. And the Egyptians are led by Cleopatra, played by Magdalena Cogena, Ptolemeo, or Ptolemy, who is Bejon Meta, Aquila, Achilles, Alan Ewing, and Nereno or Nerenus, Pascal Bertin. Thank you one and all for this beautiful music. Do you guys think Kathleen is smart? Definitely. I sure do. And so when I want to hear the smart things that Kathleen has to say, <laughs> do you know where I go? I do. I do. You go to her Substack. I go to constructivecriticism.substack.com and you can get her thoughts on TV, literature, the arts, movies, and pop culture, broadly speaking. She's an incisive observer and, I will add, wickedly funny. (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, So just go to constructivecriticism.substack.com. Well, you know what time it is, Pat. Oh, I certainly do. Grant, so glad you're here. Happy to be here, but why do I feel an impending sense of doom? (laughs) Because you're about to take a test. A quiz. I love quizzes. Is it a pop quiz? It is the Opera Helmet quiz. Would you please recap the first half for us, which is also the first act of Giulio Cesare. Hold on, I gotta go get the opera helmet. Looks great on you. Yeah, I know, right? Okay, so in the beginning of Giulio Cesare, we open in late Republican Rome. The Republic is on its last legs. The empire is waiting in the wings, and the reason is these powerful personalities, people like Julius Caesar and Cleopatra and Pompey and Mark Antony are running around trying to put some uh, order to the chaos, particularly their version of order. And so Julius Caesar is chasing his rival Pompey. He chases him to the faraway land of Egypt. Which is, in fact, where we do start the opera. Not in Rome. Yeah. Do I get points off on my quiz for that? We'll see how the rest of it goes. Okay. So they arrive in Egypt, and Julius Caesar is going to go try and capture Pompey. 
But Pompey's wife begs for mercy that he not execute his rival, but instead spare his life. And Caesar is inclined to grant this request, and suddenly Pompey's head arrives, delivered by a general of the Egyptian king Ptolemy, who hopes to win Caesar's favor by presenting the head of his rival. However, Caesar is enraged by this lack of mercy and cruelty, and proceeds to sing a rage aria, of which we have many, many more to come, because this is this is a rage opera. I just gotta like be upfront with you here. Rage and sorrow. Lots of lamentation, too. Absolutely. And then, one by one, more or less every character on stage falls in love with Cornelia, the widow. The most amusing of these people being the one who's delivering the severed head of her husband and looks at her and is like, hey, hey, she's uh, she's something. Yeah, good timing, huh? Yeah, no, not really. But he's, he's super into her, and uh, he's hoping that it'll work out. And he gets the Egyptian king, Ptolemy, to say that he can have a swing at her, even though Ptolemy himself kind of fancies her a little bit, because, again, she's hot stuff. Speaking of hot stuff, Cleopatra, who is the co-ruler slash rival of Ptolemy, decides that she wants to get Caesar on her side. And she does it in the most classic way possible by dressing up as a commoner, seducing Caesar, and then revealing herself to be extremely, extremely helpful to his plans. Meanwhile, Pompey's son Sextus is repeatedly vowing revenge, and he and his mother are trying to come up with ways to go after Ptolemy without getting killed, because they're both trying to avenge their husband-slash-father, and also, you know, keep each other alive, which is a little challenging in this scenario. Uh, Caesar meets up with Ptolemy, and you expect a big confrontation, but instead they're all just super passive-aggressive about it. <laughs> yes. And Caesar's like, this dude's totally going to betray me. And then Sextus is like, hey, Ptolemy, fight me. And Ptolemy's like, nah. Then the general who brought in the severed head of Cornelia's husband is like, hey, Cornelia, you're hot stuff. And Cornelia's like, gross. I am a Roman woman. Yeah, she's, she's, she's too good for that. Or, you know, maybe just very upset about the whole severed head of husband situation. Well, we end the act with one of the two duets in the opera. We love us some duets. Mostly it's it's rage arias and solos here. <laughs> so the duets are, are a nice relief. And it's the duet between mother and son when they're about to be both held captive. And things are looking down for the Pompey family. And historical spoiler alert, it doesn't get much better. Well, I mean, maybe in the short term, in the sense that they get revenge, but does revenge really make things better, or does it just assuage the hurt feelings of the moment without actually bringing any closure or uh, resolution to the problems that have caused those feelings in the first place? A topic for another day. <laughs> you know what they say, if you're going to do revenge, dig two graves first. Mm. Ouch. Kathleen, we haven't yet mentioned who the librettist is. Could you tell us a little bit about the librettist and how the libretto came to be? Absolutely. The libretto is by Niccolo Francesco Hai. He was an Italian and he was something of an Italian polymath. He was not just a librettist. Mm. He was a composer. He managed a theater. He was a former cellist. He was a literary editor. And my favorite, he was a numismatist, which means that he collected coins. And he wasn't just like a casual numismatist. Like his coin collection is now, I believe, in the British Museum. Wow. He provided several of Handel's librettos, including this one for also Atone, Flavio, Tamerlano, and Rodelinda, as well as several others. His source material is 
mostly, I would say, Plutarch's Life of Julius Caesar, but deeply embellished. There's also an earlier libretto that he was influenced by, by an obscure librettist named Giacomo Busani. Yeah, when Handel spent a few years in Italy early in his career, he collected librettos because it was not at all unusual for a libretto to be set by multiple, multiple different composers. Once you had a good libretto, you worked with it. Okay, so here's my question. Handel is not Italian. No, German. And Handel is not working in Italy. No, London. He spends most of his career in London. And here he is writing in Italian, which seems uh, an interesting choice. It's a beautiful language, I'll say. It is. It is the language of opera for a quite a long time. I mentioned just a moment ago that he went and spent a number of years in Italy to study Italian opera, which is what pretty much any composer who really wanted to brush up on the technique of creating opera did. He collected libretti there. He even had two very successful operas that he produced while he was still those couple of years in in Italy. Agrippina was one of them. Beloved. In fact, they called him our dear, dear Saxon. I won't pronounce it in Italian, but (laughs) that's what they called him. And he goes back to Germany. He gets a position. He never becomes completely part of the household of any member of the aristocracy or royalty, but he has positions. And he had the good fortune to connect up with the man in Germany who shortly thereafter will become George I. And so both these two Germans end up being in England. Handel does go before George I, and he works and is admired by Queen Anne at the time, very much so. He wrote a lot of music for her and the court, but he kept separate also. He saw that as a great danger to be too involved with the royalty. Smart man. That usually doesn't end well for people, especially in the court of Queen Anne, unfortunately. And he also witnessed some of it in various German courts as well. I think he was encouraged that way by his father, who had a great business sense. I mean, such a business sense that he said, don't be a musician to his young son. He even forbade musical instruments in the house. Handel snuck a clavichord into the attic. He couldn't be stopped. He even walked by foot to another town following his father into a court so that he could learn more about music that was an option in the court. I can't do his whole biography now, but it's a fascinating one. Even though we have limited information, what we do know is fascinating. That said, Italian was the language of opera. It was a style. It was a passion. And when Handel landed in London, his musical talent plus the fact that he was able to bring in these acclaimed Italian singers to London, he was the man. He was a smash hit success. And it's also worth mentioning, since we're doing Giulio Cesare right now, that Julius Caesar might have been then and often is referred to now as Handel's most popular opera. It's beloved. One of the interesting things that I came across as I was researching for this is there's a a very complicated debate that I will just gloss a little bit here about Italian opera and the other arts in England. Mm. So at this time in the mid 18th centuries, we haven't hit the Romantic poets yet. No. So so much of popular, and I use that with some scare quotes, literature, is very focused on sense, on regulating the self, on wisdom, on moderation. One of the most popular writers of this time is Alexander Pope, who is basically all about this. So Handel gets praised specifically by Pope after his death for having created music that, uh, for opera 
that basically took the what Pope and, and some of his contemporaries considered to be the empty emotion of oh. Italian opera. Oh. That it was it was very anti-moderation, that it was mm. full of passion, that it aroused the senses, that it, it quickened the blood, but mm-hmm. but was ultimately empty. Sort of what we would think of as um, I don't know, like watching a, a, a gothic horror movie now or something like that. Superficial. Yeah, reading a romance novel. Pope and his contemporaries really thought that written words or sung words should be used for better purpose than just arousing the motions and quickening the blood. Mm. Um, so he praised Handel for specifically taking, quote, aid from sense, and he contrasted it with that sort of emptiness. So he made Italian opera more acceptable to a wider range of, of existing authors, which allowed Handel to be seen as more one of them instead of a popular Sort of how we'd see, once again, like a romance novelist today. Yeah. He was so admired. Later on, Beethoven, who admired Handel's achievements, says that he is the unattained master of all masters. Also, one little fun fact about Handel, who was born in 1685, very same year that Johann Sebastian Bach was born, and Domenico Scarlatti. What a good year for music. What a good year for music. Okay. So I mostly know Handel for the that that what's that piece that we play in Christmas time or Easter? Or? The Messiah. You did a wonderful episode with me. I thought we agreed it was Messiah. Handel's Messiah in any event. Did he do much in the way of opera? He wrote over 40 operas. That sounds like it would take a long time. He was good at his job. He wrote over 40 operas and then right around the time that he moved to do the Messiah, which was 1741. He no longer was writing operas because they fell out of fashion, these Italian language operas, and he moved more into oratorios and cantatas. He wrote 29 oratorios, 120 cantatas, and various other organ music and chamber music. He was a prolific composer. So you guys were just explaining that he wasn't like one of those airport novelists, romance novelist people, but man, he was cranking them out just about as fast as they do. You know, some people are blessed with a a fast wit and intellect. And also YouTube didn't exist then. So what else was he going to do? All right. (laughs) I think we should get back to our story. We've we've left the mother and son saddened profoundly by their imminent separation and imprisonment. Act two opens with Cleopatra in a pleasant cedar grove. And she is getting ready to carry out her plans to seduce Caesar. She's not just going to bat her eyes at this guy. She's really going to bring on the drama and act out a role. She's really going to just kind of roll out the red carpet for him. (laughs) Not here. We already said that's not in this version. She says, I have decided in disguise to make the man who has won my heart. So she's admitting he has won her heart. She's going to make him a prisoner of love. Aw. So working with this right-hand man, Nuranus, he comes onto the scene and Cleopatra is dressed as virtue and she sings a seduction aria. While dressed as virtue, interesting choice.
that was a portion of Cleopatra's seduction aria, this elaborately staged event, and it works. Caesar says, Jupiter has no melody to rival so sweet a song. My heart flees to deep enchantment. So she succeeded. Well, she's Cleopatra. I don't think she's ever not succeeded at attempting to seduce anyone. <laughs> at least that's what we're told, isn't it? Well, Nerenus continues to encourage Caesar in his affections. By the way, this, this scene has closed and Cleopatra is no longer present. And Caesar is in such a delightful mood that he sings this lovely little piece. We'll just listen to a bit of it as well about being in a pleasant flowery meadow, a songbird. And it's this lovely piece where usually the violin will appear on stage with Caesar in the role of a bird. And they have this little back and forth together. Let's, let's hear a bit of that. little interlude of romance, but back to the lamentations in the seraglio. Oh, poor Cornelia. Poor Cornelia. It's really sad that everybody wants Cornelia, but nobody treats her very well. True. So Cornelia, because she has has not done everything that Ptolemeo wishes for her to do, i.e. become his mistress, he has imprisoned her in his harem, his seraglio. Yep. And she is... Uh, nominally supposed to be tending flowers outside the garden of the seraglio, which seems honestly overly innocent. Not really what a seraglio is for, but but we'll go with it. And she is lamenting her position because she is both trapped and I think probably darker things await her. I think the flowers might be more symbolic than literal. Yes, and it's not always staged with flowers at all. She's in a bad position. And, of course, Achilles shows up and he continues to press his case and saying, hey, I could, I could make your life a whole lot nicer by getting you out of here. He seems like trouble. And if, if you know your Roman history, uh, one of the things that, that famous Roman maidens tend to do when faced with choosing between losing their virtue and losing their life is they tend to choose losing their life. So Cornelia is at this time also contemplating suicide and not for the first time. Right. A goodly chunk of Augustine's City of God is actually devoted to talking people out of this concept and explaining that the Roman women who were raped in the barbarian invasions actually didn't need to commit suicide from the point of view of Christian ethics as opposed to the more honor-bound pagan ethics. Fascinating. So he's writing that about when, Augustine? City of God is published about 425-426 CE. Interesting take on these 
morals that we're struggling with in this show as well as many others. Yeah, and I think it it makes sense that although this comes up as a threat multiple times, uh, Sextus and Cordelia both threaten suicide multiple times throughout the opera, this never comes to pass. It is is actually not that opera, not that kind of opera. And I think that's really reflected in in the attempt to adopt more Christian ethics and morality throughout the, the story. Yeah. Cornelia is here, and I think it's time. We've mostly been playing arias, that one duet. It's time to play a little bit of recitative so that you can get a sense of the back and forth. Because Handel's recitatives, as I said, they not only move the plot forward, but they're very interesting as well. And the little bit of the conversation between Cornelia now and Ptolemy, following quickly in this scene, where she has rejected Achilles, his general, and he's like, I'm the king. Take me. I'm the man you want. And she rejects him, once again, citing the fact that she is Cornelia, a proud woman and a Roman. And Ptolemy loses it. He is furious, he is nasty, and he is angry. So we'll play a little recitative and we'll move in to his probably the most famous of Ptolemy's arias in this opera. You are so pitiless. That's what he accuses Cornelia of. was our countertenor Ptolemy in Handel's Giulio Cesare and he is angry because he's not getting his way. It seems like that's a running theme in opera for everyone that kings are very bad at being told no. I'm not sure it's just opera where that happens. On a positive note, queens such as Cleopatra also don't like to take no for an answer but we're, we're more rooting for that side of things. Yeah, along the lines of people who are kings or in positions of great power not taking no for an answer. Two operas that Handel composed that are still being played today. By the way, I should mention that Handel was very popular for a time, and then for about 150 years, almost no one produced his operas. It wasn't until the 
early middle 20th century that Handel operas, these Baroque operas, come into the repertoire again. And it's little by little. They're they're different from something like a Puccini or the Wagner or the Strauss. We have done episode 30 was Tom Erlano that we did. There's a king there who doesn't like to be told no. <laughs> and also Rodelinda, all written in 1724, a little bit 1723, 1725, but a very short period of time. Yeah. Makes you really wonder about Handel's actual feelings towards the new royal family in Great Britain who had come over from Germany with whom he was acquainted and involved and had some experience with them being told yes or no. Part of the reason he kept his distance to a degree, to a degree. Well, back in our story, when Ptolemy finishes his aria, as with so many of these arias, they are exit arias. In other words, that you say your piece, you share your emotions, and you leave the stage. And he does this. And Cornelia is left and joined by Sextus, her son. Yes, Sextus is in the garden, and he is understandably very upset to see his mother treated the way that she is. And I mean, in his own position is is quite bad. He is sort of the other angsty teenager in this in this opera to go along with Ptolemy. They're, they're interesting foils to each other because in age, they're very similar and they're both attempting to consolidate power that was given to them by their father. Mm. But Sextus, we have a lot more sympathy for him. We do. Yes, well, very deliberately so. Yes. <laughs> he has not delivered anyone's head on a platter, not yet, at least in his career. So he, he sings with his mother... Basically, once again, the same things he said before, he's, he's vowing revenge, he wants to fight, he wants to avenge his father, but he is, he's somewhat trapped in a, an inability to fulfill the one thing he needs to do. And so he's a very frustrated character who is unable to develop or move forward in the opera, at least at this point. Yeah. So let's hear a little bit of his aria of resolve, of determination, where he is ready to strike.
That was Sextus letting us know he's ready to do battle to avenge his father's death. He is, he is ready. Change of scenery. Once again, we are back in a garden with Cleopatra, who is awaiting the arrival of Caesar. And this is when she's really going to lock down this alliance through seduction. And to whom would she pray for such success? Of course, it's a Roman goddess, the goddess of beauty and love. She prays to the goddess Venus. Which is a very interesting thing. Historically speaking, Cleopatra would have had some mixture of Hellenistic and Egyptian gods in her life and worldview. The temples that she would have overseen and been involved with. But here we have her taking a step into the Roman world, invoking a goddess by a Roman name. And it is intriguing that it isn't a goddess or god of political power, but a goddess of love. But lest we forget, Venus was in the Roman pantheon married to the god of war. So <laughs> it's actually a fairly perfect, fairly apt pairing. A pairing which, of course, is low-key adulterous, just like the pairing of Caesar and Cleopatra. In fact, it sort of makes sense, thinking of Cleopatra as being a little like Venus and thinking of Caesar as being a little like Mars. Caesar, whatever he was or wasn't, was certainly a formidable warrior and a commanding battlefield general. Well, it does seem that her prayers are answered, because she asks for all the charms and beauty of Venus to be bestowed upon her and sees her comes upon her as she's pretending to be asleep and he is enchanted he finds her to be the most beautiful thing in fact he even says oh if only you were awake I would ask you to be my wife well guess who wakes up because she was never really asleep in the first place I hope Caesar's wife wasn't listening uh no she's back she's crossed a sea there <laughs> yeah and uh they don't get to wrestle with those emotions and issues that have just been brought up for very long because in comes Caesar's right-hand man with some very important news. Yes, the quote-unquote alliance between Ptolemy and Caesar was as, as untrustworthy as Caesar expected it to be. And he's been betrayed. People are on their way to his apartments to kill him, chanting death to Caesar. Yeah, a good-sized force. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But don't worry. Because Cleopatra is off of her peasant garb, because she is still in disguise, of course. And she says, don't worry. I am the queen of Egypt. Everything's going to be totally fine. She's like, oh, whoops. I didn't mean to say that. I wasn't ready to give up the plot yet. <laughs> but she, she can't help being a queen. Yeah, she reveals her true identity because she is going to be a leader of arms as well. She wants her men to go and fight on Caesar's behalf. So... That takes us to Caesar gearing up to face these men who want to kill him. I've seen stagings where they play it for laughs, where time is of the essence, but of course he has to sing an aria about how he's feeling about the whole thing. And Cleopatra is like, uh, don't you need to be getting out of here and saving your life and fighting this battle? So let's hear a little bit of Caesar. In the flash of arms, this warrior's soul will take its revenge. We won't play the whole thing because we're, we're worried about Caesar getting out of there. And unlike Caesar, we know how to act when we're in a hurry. <laughs> oh, 
that's how Caesar's feeling as he is getting ready to face Ptolemy's forces. After he departs, we get to hear a little bit about how Cleopatra's feeling. And it's another one of her grief arias. She is grieving for what she fears might be happening to her new lover. This aria has been called by some commentators as Handel's most beautiful aria. Supieta, or just heaven, if you feel no pity for me, I shall die. Grant me peace to my torments, or my soul will perish. Caesar's getting ready for battle. Cleopatra is worried about him. And we move again to the harem, the seraglio. And Ptolemy, he is deciding he truly wants Cornelia. And he wants to take her willingly or by force. You know, I'm starting to get the sense this guy might not be the nicest person. Definitely not. I'm starting to get a sense that all that inbreeding isn't really producing uh, clear-minded individuals to rule Egypt. Back to our clear-minded individual, Sextus, who wants to avenge his father's death. With the help of Nerenus, he has once more made it into the harem, and he moves to strike on Ptolemy. But Aquila is there, and he stops him, making his namesake Achilles very proud. Absolutely. And Achilles has news. He says, sir... In this battle between your forces and Caesar, Caesar has jumped 
into the water, and he is dead along with a bunch of his men. And this is actually roughly historical. There are several sources that say that Caesar jumped into the Nile. But Caesar, as it turns out, is a fantastic swimmer. Yes, yes, but we don't know that yet. We don't know that yet. And this news is bad news for mother and son, for Cornelia and Sextus. Yes, Aquila having once again rendered services not to Cornelia, but just sort of around her been heroic, says, okay, so you'll, you'll marry me now? Uh, she says, no, I'm, I'm good. And also uh, Ptolemy says, excuse me, I've, I've, I've said this, I've called dibs on this one. And so once again, we return to our theme of everybody wants to marry Cornelia and Cornelia just wants to be left alone. She wants to be left alone, but the fact that these two men are fighting and the king pulls rank doesn't do a lot for the loyalty of his right-hand man. It's true. Aquila, we don't really know much about him, but we know that he wants Cornelia, and he doesn't seem to be overly loyal to Ptolemy. I think he's more of a loyal to whoever's the strong man type of person. So being denied a thing that he thinks is his right, sort of similar to another Achilles, he furiously stomps off and will cause trouble later on. Rage. Sing, O goddess. The Rage of Godlike Achilles. Thank you, Grant. That was a beautiful first line of the Iliad. And yes, I, I believe that's what, what Handel is referencing here. Nice. Well, Cornelia and her son Sextus are bereft again. They had hope. They've lost hope with Caesar's death. And Sextus, once again, makes an attempt to kill himself and is stopped by Cornelia. She counsels him to be bold, have courage. Well, that's where it's left at the end of Act 2. And when we open in Act 3, Achilles makes very clear how he's feeling betrayed by Ptolemy, and he will betray Ptolemy in return. So one by one, people are going over to the side of, well, Caesar or Cornelia, the Roman side. And in short order, we have a wonderful confrontational scene between the siblings, Ptolemy and Cleopatra. My money's on Cleopatra. Yes, mine too. It's interesting that this is the first time I think they've been in the same room together, really, for having been pretty important characters throughout. And in this encounter, Ptolemy is really asserting his dominance. Ptolemy thinks he has the upper hand, and he's even taken Cleopatra prisoner. Cleopatra is here, prisoner of her brother, the king, looking like all of her plans and hopes have been dashed. Caesar is dead. And here she sings this exquisite lament, Piangero la sorte mia, I will lament my lot. She doesn't see any reason for hope. And it is in these lamentations that some of the most sweetly, sadly beautiful music occurs in this opera. And this is a beloved aria for a soprano. Most of the arias we've played, we've just played clips to give you a flavor of the emotion that's being expressed. I want to play a bit more of this to illustrate the style of aria that was so common in Baroque operas, the Da Capo aria, which has an A-B-A structure, meaning A, first time around, the short number of words, it's usually only a line or two, is presented. It's the opening section and it is complete as written. And B, same words typically, it contrasts with the A presentation. It's in a different key, a different mood. It can be shorter and less ornate, possibly more reflective. And then we come back to A. So it's a lot like that first presentation of the lines, but it's marked de capo from the top. And here, the singer 
can improvise a little. In other words, they embellish, they decorate the lines. And this is when you get all of this flowery singing or ornamented singing, and it's just deepening that emotion, but doing it with vocal technique. And this is why those individual singers were so important in Baroque operas. The superstars who would demand from a composer that arias be written for them, which would show off their prowess in singing. So listen as we play this aria for those changes in Piangerot.
Kathleen, you've already let us know that Caesar is a great swimmer and he survives. And it's right after this heart-rending lamentation of Cleopatra that we see Caesar washed up on the shore. Yes, you you can't keep Caesar down. (laughs) It takes some, how many people to kill him these days? Lots and lots of people. But that's in the future. So he's there. He's grateful to be alive, but he sees the results of this battle that's been going on. Bodies are strewn here and there. It's been a pretty serious battle. And before long, we have Sextus, we have Achilles come on, and Sextus is still looking for Ptolemy to get his revenge. Achilles is mortally wounded in the battle, but he wants to do one last bit of service to see that Ptolemy is defeated. He has definitively switch sides there. Yes, and Achilles, we haven't really spoken a lot about what his role is. It's a bit vague, but he's basically the commanding general of all of Ptolemy's armies. So it makes Ptolemy's whole, you can't have the girl you want thing even more stupid. Ptolemy really is is very hubristic and horny in that sense. (laughs) So Achilles is able to very easily put the nail in Ptolemy's coffin by saying, I have the authority to turn over all of Ptolemy's troops to your command, Caesar slash Sextus. And he has a a seal, which is just like a a big piece of metal saying, I'm in command. And he gives that to Sextus and says, here you go. You have my army. Go defeat Ptolemy. Have a good day. And then he dies. And he dies. And Caesar has, in hiding, been witnessing this. And he immediately walks up to Sextus and says, give me that seal. (laughs) And Sextus... It's kind of relieved, I think, to be able to hand over the seal to an actual general. Yes, if if Caesar ever appears and says, I would like to take uh, charge of this giant army, saying yes is a good thing to, to do. Yeah. And Sextus is now filled with hope that perhaps, perhaps his efforts at revenge against Ptolemy will be successful. Yeah, I think he's got this thing. So Caesar pledges to Sextus that he will save both Cornelia and Cleopatra, or he will die trying. And Sextus is very cheered by this and decides, yes, I'll fight right alongside you. And everything is actually looking up for our heroes. And Sextus and Caesar never had any problems from that day forward. Well, I mean, kind of, yes, in in the sense of if we're going to stop the story at the end of this opera, because as we've hinted at or even said boldly before, this opera is about to have a happy ending. Typical for Baroque operas. Which is very interesting given what we know of the story later. Although, Kathleen, you were pointing out that there is a very specific reason why it ends in this moment. Yes, this section of the life of Julius Caesar, Plutarch, which is the source material for the libretto, does end here. I mean, Caesar's story doesn't end here, but any and all mention of Cleopatra and Caesar's connection ends here. So we don't get some exciting little pieces of trivia like as soon as Cleopatra and her her younger brother are co-regents at the end of this opera, Cleopatra poisons her brother like five seconds later, but we don't get that because we want a happy ending as Plutarch did. And we will get a happy ending. Of course, there's going to be one more lamentation from Cleopatra because she needed another aria and has not yet heard the news that Caesar has survived, but he will come in and say, ah, I am here, I have saved you. She's thrilled to pieces, needless to say. Meanwhile, Sextus is looking for his mother because as things are looking up, he wants to save her. And he, of course, finds Ptolemy about to um, ravish her, is the term I'll use. 
Yeah, it's very it's very good timing. It is extre- extremely good timing. And he is able to kill Ptolemy, thus finally fulfilling the one thing that he is supposed to do in this opera. After all that talk, After he all that talk, finally sticks the sword in his body. Yes, and he can finally be a man. I love it when you've had that one thing on your to-do list forever, and it just never, <laughs> you don't get around to it. There's always something else. Something gets in the way. And then you like check it off and you're like, that's great. I'm on to off to vacation. Goodbye. And needless to say, here, Cornelia is feeling very triumphant. All of the encouragement she has given her son, all of her hopes that she has placed in her son have triumphed. Cornelia is feeling triumphant. Ptolemy is dead. Caesar is alive. Even Achilles, the general of the Egyptian army, is dead. Cleopatra has secured Caesar's love. What's left for this opera? Well, we've, we've got to do something with Cleopatra. Proclaim her queen is really what, what's left to do. Because she is, is the person who's helped Caesar throughout. He loves her. Love and... Roman virtues have triumphed, and she will be crowned queen of Egypt in a, as I said, as a co-regent with her younger brother, who has been causing considerably less trouble than her elder, who's actually still younger than her, but more troublesome. (laughs) Yes, Caesar will declare, let Egypt now in a more tranquil state enjoy its first liberty. It is Caesar's wish that fame shall spread the great name of Rome from one pole to the other. Hmm. This doesn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say, it's it's interesting to me that, that Caesar is putting this in the context of, I don't know if he's like, oh yeah, you know, they're free from tyranny, as if Cleopatra and her, her other brother are not going to be tyrants of, of this country, but okay, cool. Yeah, that's where we are. And we get the other duet of the opera here. Finally, right at the end, the love duet between Cleopatra and Caesar. That's good. I was worried those crazy kids couldn't make it work. And that's how we get our happy ending. So we're going to go out on that piece of music, but let me thank you, Kathleen and Grant, for joining me today. This has been amazing. Another Handel opera, and I look forward to more of these and more from other composers. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Always.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. If you enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast. Make sure to smash that like button and rate, comment, and subscribe. Opera can be challenging. But smashing the like button, anyone can do. (laughs) And everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. And even better than that is subscribing to our podcast. (laughs) Our mission is to make opera understandable. Five-star understandable. Accessible and enjoyable. Because we believe... Opera is for everyone! everyone.